Hello, listeners. Welcome to the Content Clearinghouse. I'm Josh Evans. And I'm Brett Chisholm. And on today's episode, existential dread gets pumped up a notch, as I am wont to do around here, as I discuss the fascinating world of your body malfunctioning. And then Brett talks about the Groundhog Day video game manga-inspired sci-fi flick starring real-life action star Tom Cruise and sweaty yoga master Emily Blunt. This movie can be watched again and again and again and again. Man, this bit really isn't working. Hope we get another shot at this intro. We're talking about Edge of Tomorrow. Movies, shows, and video games. Podcast books and their acclaims. Let their favorite content become yours. It's the Content Clearing House. Content Clearing House. And it starts right now. Brett. Josh. How are you? I'm doing pretty good. I if it sounds like I have allergies, I have allergies. Well, I thought I'd I thought I'd mention that, that and get that out of the way. Yep, um, that uh that seems logical. Hey, it was good to see you at that event this weekend. It really was. <laughs> we went to our uh awesome friends Tom and Jess's wedding and I'd say it was the event of the year. And what was really cool is uh throughout the evening I would just say, Brett and he'd turn around and I'd say, How are you? He had like a Pavlovian response to me yelling his name out from us doing this show. Just went straight into a summary of the last uh, 15 <laughs> minutes since you asked me that question the time before. Oh, let me catch you up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they just played another song and I did a little bit more dancing. Yeah, that really was uh, a chicken dance about the most incredible uh, wedding and actually just event in general that I might have ever been to. Telluride not only is an amazing, beautiful place, but the group of people was fantastic. And uh, yeah, Tom and Jess just know how to uh, just go all out, pull out all the stops, if you will, just have an amazing time. I definitely will. And I do want to talk about uh, how I got there. So um, I flew out there with my friend, John Braun, who also flew me to uh, the Delta skydiving trip a few weeks ago. And um, flying into Telluride, is incredible so the uh the runway is on top of a mesa that sits at like ten thousand feet above sea level and coming in it looks like you're coming into land on an aircraft carrier and they even have like this light system so like on your approach if you're too high it reads i guess like three white lights and if you're too low it reads three or four red lights and then what what you're looking for is too white, too red. And that means you're like on the perfect glide slope to come in and land on this crazy runway. And I've landed on a lot of runways and that was definitely like an entirely new experience. Unlike any plane landing I've ever done before, because off, uh, off the end of the runway, it's just like a mountain just drops right off. And then on the right side, on the right side on, on approach, it was again, just like almost like a cliff face. So these incredible views coming in and apparently you can only take off one way because if you take off uh, towards terrain, the back of the runway is kind of ringed by mountains. It's almost impossible, I've heard, to climb out over those mountains. There's even been fatal plane crashes going off that way. So when you when you take off, it looks like something that James Bond would chase a plane on a motorcycle off the edge of a cliff and then fly down and climb in and fly the plane away. That's kind of the the feeling I got of taking off and landing in that airport. It was incredible. It really is. Tell you right, I've 
had the pleasure of flying there um, with two different companies, actually. So with a turboprop and also with a jet for a charter company, I've landed in Telluride a few times. And um, the, it, the sights, um, even just being a pedestrian, taking a gondola over the mountain range from Mountain Village to downtown Telluride is truly something to behold. But it, I mean, it's, so it's a box canyon. So for, for those of you that have never been to Telluride, it's definitely worth checking out. For those of you that don't know Tom and Jess, it's definitely worth uh, meeting them. And uh, yeah, we'll, we'll see you at the anniversary party, I guess. Indeed. One more thing about that, uh, that gondola ride. We took a ride down late at night and going down the gondola at midnight, it felt like being in a suspended uh, sensory deprivation tank. You couldn't see anything. And it's just the only thing you could really experience was a little bit of the sound when you would go past one of the the cable wheels overhead. And then uh, it was just swaying ever so slightly. But around us, it was complete pitch black. It was quite the experience. Uh, I'm not sure what was crazier going up during the day and having all the crazy sights or going down at night and being completely cut off from all visual input. Well, if you wanted to uh, try this on your next gondola ride, but it's daytime, close your eyes. See what you think. That's the way to do it. I hear that cuts off all visual input. (laughs) You know, we came from that amazing experience. And then today we woke up to maybe, this is like in the top, maybe 10 most horrifying things is, that has happened recently. I've had a lot of horror in my life. But uh, we woke up this morning. So our daughter, Violet, who's you know, a year and a half old, she'll usually wake up in the you know six in the morning and she's like, oh, feed me. So we'll grab her and we'll bring her and she'll lay down with us and give her a bottle and hopefully she goes back to sleep. Well, after we fed her her bottle this morning, like 10 minutes later, she, wake up, she woke up just like screaming and we jumped out of bed and there was a wasp in our bed. It had stung her on her thumb and she was just in absolute horrified pain. And uh, I grabbed the baby, Melissa, who the wasp was climbing on, just like smashed the wasp and killed it. And I know how bad that hurts because we have wasps here and I got stung since we've lived here two and a half years. I've been stung three times. So they're all over the place here. And I remember the last time I got stung, I could feel the venom moving up my wrist and where I had got stung, it felt like someone was just punching me over and over, like, I don't know, like with a claw hammer or something. So that was terrifying as a parent. And oh, that's uh, terrible. That is insane. It was really scary. Luckily, she was fine. It was like 10 minutes later, she was pretty much over it. Luckily, she didn't get any swelling or fever or anything. Is that, but, I was going to ask, because I know uh, there's like uh, really bad bee allergies. Is is Are wasps the same type of thing? Can you be really like deathly allergic to a wasp? Well, I looked this up and uh, it, it none of the articles I read made it sound like there were really a whole lot of horrible wasp allergies like there are with bees. But uh, I was looking up symptoms and things you know, things you might experience after being stung. And one of the articles said, the worst experience you'll have from being stung is if a wasp stings you in your throat or in your gastrointestinal tract. You know, like if you accidentally <laughs> swallow a wasp that's in your Coke when you're outside. Or it's like, oh my God. Flies yeah. up your butt. That sounds way worse than getting stung in the thumb. My God. Well, I'm really glad Violet's okay. That is uh, 
That is pretty insane. And uh, I like, what is a wasp doing in your house hunting your babies? We've been gone for two days. And it's not like we just lift all the windows and doors open. So we were thinking either this wasp has been in here this whole time just running amok. Or, I don't know, we may have some seals busted on the bottom of our doors or something. Because we don't just... We have them here living in the side of our house. Like, it's kind of like the worst thing about where we live. But, uh, yeah, we might have to go around and check everything. Because if wasps are getting in here, that changes the game. Yeah, no kidding. Well, you also... It's not like living in a house anymore. It's like living in a horror show. Well, at the wedding, you told me um, that you're worried about coyotes when you're one wheeling to the liquor store. So <laughs> sounds like you're there you're getting attacked from all uh philium of the animal kingdom. Yes. So when I uh there's a little patch of green space that I have to ride across when I hop from one neighborhood to another. And we have signs all over the area out here like don't leave your pets off leash. There's coyotes here and rattlesnakes. Don't forget about the rattlesnakes. So when I ride across the green space I'm always just clapping as loud as I can, trying to make myself as obvious as possible that Hey, here comes a human. Don't mess with me. And uh, on that note, Brett. Yes. I did just order an upgrade to my one wheel. Oh. I ordered an XR. Congratulations. So I'm going up in model. I'm getting that range and the speed that I've been lusting Thirsting over ever for. since I bought my pint. Right. <laughs> exactly. That's awesome. I, I definitely am a big fan of the XR. I was back and forth a lot because I like the portability of a pint. Um, but I just do so much like off-roading with the one wheel, especially around where I'm at now. Uh, which I didn't know I was going to end up here when I got the one wheel. But yeah, that, I think the XR is the way to go unless you're maybe like carrying this thing on subways, like down, you know, downtown cities. But uh, yeah, I, I use mine mostly. Thanks. I use mine mostly to push Violet's stroller, the uh, wasp magnet. I'll, uh, I'll push her all around the neighborhood and I'll also walk our dog, Polly. But I'm getting to the point now where I want to be able to range out further because I'll take her on like maybe a 45 minute ride. My battery's almost dead. And I've definitely hit like the outer radius of everywhere I can go around here and still make it back without my one wheel becoming total dead weight. So I think it's time to upgrade. Well, that sounds good. What are you going to do with the pint then? I'm going to teach uh, Isla, our four-year-old, to ride it. Perfect. Her feet are not quite big enough, but she'll ride it with me. So she and I will ride it like a two-person surfboard. So I'll just set my feet wide and put her feet right against the fender and I'm teaching her how to go forward, how to stop, how to turn. So I think once her feet are big enough to activate the the pressure pads, hopefully she'll be into it and want to learn to ride it herself. Then we'll have a little one wheel gang. Well, I was hoping you were going to say that. That's pretty awesome. So what do you have uh, for the off top this evening? Oh, well, Brett, yes. I want to start with a question like we do here. The old uh, CCH special. On a scale from one to Y, what's your existential dread like these days? Oh, uh, a one to Y. Yeah. Y being like, why? Exactly. Um, I don't know. It, it kind of fluctuates. It's, I'm, some, I'm somewhere between like one and a half and like just below Y. That's not a yeah. bad range to live yeah. in. Yeah. It depends on the day. I don't want you... I don't want you living in a state of why all the time. Yeah. But uh, today is going to be a public service announcement day at uh, the Content Clearinghouse. So most of this that I'm going to talk about came from this bigthink.com article by Matt Davis. And uh, 
Maybe you've heard of the term Kuru. I know I had before. Kuru? It's I'm not, not sure it's how many. Not ringing a bell. So Kuru is, uh, if you've ever heard of it, you may have heard of it from the stories of the, the cannibalistic tribe in Papua New Guinea. They're suffering, or they were suffering from this rare brain disease that shuts down motor function. It causes fits of bizarre laughter, difficulty controlling your emotions, difficulty standing, swallowing, and then at the end you lose all motor function. And it has a 100% fatality rate. And the uh, the Foray tribe of Papua New Guinea were haunted by this disease, Kuru, until the 1960s. And they had a practice of funerary cannibalism where the village members would eat their dead with the women and children mainly eating the brains of the dead. And the brains had the highest concentration of this disease. And what's so scary about Kuru is how a simple malfunction in basic human physiology brings about this absolute horror show. So this isn't a virus or bacteria. It's a misfolded protein that causes Kuru. I know where you're going with this. Yeah, I think you do. (laughs) So the number one thing to keep in mind is I'm not a doctorologist, so you'll have to bear with me on some of the technical facts. But uh, so the amino acids, which are the building blocks of protein, they're folded in a certain way, and that causes the protein to perform a certain function. And proteins do things like build bodily tissues. They cause biochemical reactions like digestion. They maintain pH balance, all kind of great stuff that keeps you and me alive, Brett. So when amino acids are not folded properly, they don't just cease to function, but sometimes they gain new functions. And the protein that causes Kuru is known as PRP, which they think has something to do with memory. And there's a lot of they think with... Kuru and its uh, other name, which is prion. This is a uh, prion disease. And there's a lot of just speculation about prions. Even like the, even like the highest level of scientific study hasn't really come up with a lot of answers about this, which is another thing that makes it so scary. Yeah, I've definitely, um, I can't remember the first time I heard of a prion. I actually have a feeling it came from that um, kind of a, it was a iPhone game. We just mentioned it recently. Is it Infected or Plague? Maybe Plague. Plague Inc. Plague Inc. That's it. Yes. Um, I like unlocked you know the level at some point where you can play as a prion, and uh, you know so it wasn't that recently that I first heard about it because I've been playing that game since it came out many years ago. But it also wasn't that long ago um, either. Like I mean, it's it's not something I was like taught in school, or if I was. I didn't know much about it, but anytime I hear about prions, I know that um, hunters worry about chronic wasting disease, I believe is from a prion. And so, you know, they, I, I don't think you can get it from the meat unless you do eat the brain. I could be wrong about that, but um, it's it sounds pretty terrifying. So I'm just going to play it safe and not eat brains. It's <laughs> a good policy. Yeah. yeah. This is not something I ever learned about growing up. In fact, why would anyone ever teach a child about this? I didn't really hear about prions until I started uh, listening to Joe Rogan, and he's always talking about chronic wasting disease. He's very worried uh, about it. He is, and he may not be wrong, although some of the things I learned in here very minorly put my mind at ease. But, uh, yeah, 
when I heard him talking about it, I was like, man, I want to, I really want to look deeper into this because this is absolutely fascinating. And they're just things that, I don't know, random chance, whatever it is that causes something like this, that creates this like offshoot of physiology on earth is very fascinating to me. And, uh, so when this protein becomes misfolded, it becomes a prion and they sometimes call this the zombie protein because when it comes in contact with another PRP protein, it causes them to misfold literally like a zombie outbreak. It causes a cascade and that cascade will cause the neural system to be overrun and it leads to the symptoms that we mentioned earlier. So some of the variations of this would be mad cow disease or a bovine spongiform encephalopathy. That's it. Nailed it. First try. Perfect. Uh, so good. Also, uh, fatal familiar insomnia, Creutzfeldt Jakob disease, and chronic wasting disease, like you mentioned earlier. These are all uh, these are all prion variants. And I never knew that mad cow disease was so scary when I was a kid. I always thought of mad cow disease as just a uh, a Will Ferrell punchline. Did you ever see the Saturday Night Live where he was Harry Carey, y'all? Uh, it's, and he was I, talking. Yeah, I don't remember the specifics <laughs> of that skit. But um, well, he asked. Uh, yeah. He asked Jeff Goldblum, who was playing some sort of scientist. He asked him if he'd uh, if he had the choice between getting mad cow disease and being the top scientist in his field, which would he choose? And of course, he chose being the top scientist in his field. So that is like that was the extent of what I knew about mad cow disease growing up. But now I realize like this is definitely something that we needed to be concerned about when we were kids. Uh, yeah. And uh, absolutely, like cows cows were getting this from eating food contaminated by the meat of an infected cow. So like dead cows were being ground up and fed to their bovine brethren, which is also like a total horror show and a little peek behind the curtain of, I guess the, uh, I don't know, the industrialized food industry of the world, which is also pretty scary. You know, this may sound a little woo wooey, but I just have a feeling that there's like, this is like a, sort of natural karmic consequence of treating animals horribly and causing suffering. And it just feels like a, like a built-in fail-safe to like take out the thing that is just harming nature. Does that sound a little, yeah, does that sound a little out there? I can't tell. Maybe, yeah. <laughs> maybe not. If, you know, if it, if it weren't also something that affected humans, I might buy into that. But uh, this is clearly a, it seems like this is, a disease that exists across the spectrum in mammals. And uh, I don't know, it just seems like one of those terrifying things that happens when you have an evolutionary system that just keeps on running. Like these these kind of crazy scenarios just develop from random chance. Now, um, so a prion is not alive, right? That's what I thought was like kind of weird about it. Yeah, it's not, it's not a virus or, or it's not really a disease you know it's not a bacteria it's just it's a protein which is you know like a building block in our body and it's the misfolding which creates like some sort of runaway reaction wow in uh in the neural cells and luckily this is all extremely rare like the the 4a people were able to eradicate this disease when they stopped the funerary cannibalist uh practice and uh creutzfeldt jakob disease only affects about one in a million so that one, I mean, that's roughly the same chances of anyone finding true love. So I don't know how you would rank that on the scale of possibility. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> wow. 
I uh, that's didn't you you were didn't you enjoy the wedding? Didn't you feel the love <laughs> and the compassion? Yeah. Like if there, it's like wow, is it, this is just like Kuru. <laughs> well, I believe in true love, but I also believe in prions. So there's a whole wide range of experiences to be had in this life. Indeed, just depends on where you want to fall on the scale between one and Y. Well, and something yeah. that's crazy about this is there's no cure for it. Gene therapy seems to be the best option. Uh, potentially them being able to turn off the PRP gene, but who knows the ramification of turning off a neural protein. I mean, I certainly have no idea since I lack the uh, necessary degree in doctorology, but that seemed like even this is something that even science didn't have an answer for. You know, this is another one of the things they think they know about it, that it could potentially be turned off, but that could lead down an entire new path of problems with turning off the the functioning protein in the, in the mind. I just love when you bring these horrifying things to the show. It really, uh, it really it's fascinating. Yeah, it it tickles me pink. You like that? Yeah. Well, here's something else that'll make you hard for you to sleep at night. <laughs> oh God. <laughs> uh, I know that autoclaving, which is you know the high pressure, high heat system that they use for cleaning like medical instruments. Yeah. Even that can't kill this thing. Like they, they said that uh, the, these proteins, they, they can't be killed with autoclaving and autoclaving actually loses its effectiveness as the temperature increases. I mean, that is like a true WT fuck nature scenario. Like that seems like that is such a, that seems so counterintuitive to what living things potentially do but it's not it but it's not living it's a part of a living thing but just the the protein like just doesn't lose its functionality wow wow incredible that is uh wow this kind of reminds me of when you talked about the uh coronal mass ejection i i don't know if i want to be taken out by a blast of solar radiation or a misfolded protein that's burrowed deep inside my brain um I choose peacefully in bed. Oh, at the end of in, end of a long life. I didn't know that was an option. That's the one I would choose. Okay, I get. Oh yeah, you can sign up forever, whatever you want, buddy. I guess I'll take that one. <laughs> I appreciate. It. I didn't realize that you you got to choose. Oh yeah, we're doling out the options today. Oh, okay. Well, thanks for that terrifying uh, and unsettling <laughs> series of prion facts. Um, you got it. So what's on your content circuit? Have you, uh, is there anything happy in there? Is it all just terrifying things? Um, man, I haven't had time for a whole lot of new stuff lately. I've kind of been striking out. I, uh, last night I started watching bad Lieutenant with Harvey Keitel and about halfway through, I was like, man, what were they doing with movies back in the day? Like I'd actually, I've heard that was a good movie, but I just couldn't get behind it. It was just super rough around the edges and ah, I don't know, man. I definitely would not suggest it. And it's strange because I'd actually heard or or read that that's like a great classic movie, but I wasn't into it at all. It was no uh, Gone with the Wind, huh? Yeah, my uh, that's my third favorite movie of all time, actually. Yeah. Well, I hear you, man. My my content circuit's been uh, pretty thin lately as well. Um, I did check out the Darknet Diaries podcast episode that you recommended. Uh, very good. And I can't wait to send uh, $5 over to my friend in Bangladesh. 
He's a he's a podcast <laughs> po- uh, promoter, and I can't wait to see us on that top of the Apple uh, podcast list for five dollars. Pretty amazing. That's all stuff. it takes. That's five it takes. bucks for millions of fake downloads. Yeah, I so I appreciate that recommendation um, for some good content. But I did actually at the wedding, JoJo gave me some great content recommendations that uh, I can't wait to check out. Uh, we have very similar tastes, and JoJo is an awesome dude. And also, Loki is coming out on Disney+. Plus. So hopefully, when I talk to you next week, my content circuit will be like a laundry list of items like a mile long. That's that's the plan, but um, sorry I didn't bring much more else to you. Not this time. We were uh, quite busy the last few days, though. Yeah, I, I would say so. Party of the century. <laughs> yeah. So... I'd say that our content was human experience. All right, well, let's take a quick break, and then when we come back, we will get into some content. content? What are some assumptions people make about you? What do they assume about you because of your profession, appearance, hobbies, or tastes? And how many of those assumptions are actually wrong? My name is Dave Kimball, and I'm the host of the Don't Assume podcast, a weekly show where my friends and I lay out all of our assumptions about one topic a week and invite in guest experts to validate or refute those assumptions. So if you want to check your own assumptions about doctors, racial division, skydiving, guns, flight attendants, or any number of other topics, come check us out at at don't assume podcast on Instagram and Facebook and find the don't assume podcast on Apple podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or anywhere else you like to listen. The don't assume podcast is streaming now. Cause you know what a soul makes out of you and me Yeah, you know what a soul makes out of you and me Clear it out Welcome back to the Content Clearinghouse. Brett, I cannot wait. I've got an idea and I can't wait. What are we talking about today? Didn't I tell you what I was talking about? <laughs> yeah, you did. Yeah. You yeah. spilled the beans at the wedding. I did. I'm not very good at uh, keeping the beans in my bowl. <laughs> it wasn't really a beans in the bowl kind of weekend. <laughs> no. Um, well, today I'm discussing a movie that uh, I think, as you know, has been on my content clearinghouse list before the content clearinghouse list even existed. Now, this is one of those sci-fi action films that, I mean, I, I actually remember seeing the trailer and thinking how good the trailer looked. Um, I mean, it's got A-list cast, cool effects, lots of action. But guess what, Josh? Trailers, especially for movies like this, can be deceiving. And I thought of a couple of examples. After Earth, Battle Los Angeles, <laughs> Lady in the Water, uh, even the uh, Tom Cruise vehicle Oblivion. All pieces of shit. <laughs> You're right. I was going to say all great, all great trailers. But you're right. They're all pieces of shit. I uh, fell asleep in oblivion. It's like the in the theater, probably the only movie in the last 20 years I can remember falling asleep in a theater while watching. It's not good. Well, um, After Earth, I will admit, I haven't seen that. I Why I, would you? <laughs> okay. That was, the, that was the one on my <laughs> list with Will Smith and his son that I, I, I can't officially say that it's bad because I just I haven't seen it, but I it's don't a, think I will pretty safe bet okay um well i mean the thing with trailers you know they're 30 seconds maybe two minutes at the most uh hopefully they don't offer any real spoiler causing 
uh, substance or they, they're not offering anything of real value uh, for the plot. So if you are really trying to avoid bad movies and you don't really trust the trailer to sell you the product, you're kind of left waiting for reviews or making assumptions based on what the cast looks like or the director, the producers and what they've done before. Or you can just watch the movie and keep your expectations low. You just listen so, to this show because all yeah, we do is tell you the best stuff on earth. That is the show. You're exactly right. Well, with this one, I had a feeling that this was probably pretty good. Uh, Tom Cruise and Emily Blunt, they're both in it. and They're usually pretty amazing in movies. The director also directed The Bourne Identity and Mr. and Mrs. Smith. And these are both action movies that I would say are well above average. I really enjoy the heck out of both of those. So I went into this film uh, excited because I had a great trailer, but I was still keeping my expectations low. And then what I witnessed was one of the absolute greatest action sci-fi films I have ever seen. And as you know, I'm talking about Edge of Tomorrow. It is one of the greatest. It really this is. is. Tom Cruise redeeming himself from oblivion. Is and that what it is? That's how I'm classifying it. I, I like I that. I also right. went into this with very low expectations because I really didn't know what to expect. And man, I was blown away. And then whenever I watched it to study for this show after you uh, spilled the beans, I was also blown away. And it's probably the 20th time I've seen it. Like, it's so amazing every single time. I've got thoughts. I hope you don't mind me interjecting tonight. I definitely do not. I mean, I, I think you summed it up pretty good. So that's the show, folks. We uh, Thanks for joining us. We'll see. No. Uh, um, all right. So here's where I'm going to start with this bad boy. We got to get this nugget out of the way. You, we brought this up at the wedding when I spilled the proverbial beans. This movie has sort of multiple names sort of so edge of tomorrow was marketed as live die repeat colon edge of tomorrow <laughs> at least on home media so it was it Disgusting. was a tagline um sometimes i mean if you look it up depending on where you're looking for it on a, like a streaming service uh it just simply shows live die repeat and i remember being very confused uh me personally because i think the first time that i saw a poster or maybe it was like the cover art uh, for a movie on one of the streaming services I use. I, I don't exactly remember. But Lived, I repeat, was in such large, bold font. I thought that they actually changed the name of the movie that I had seen when it was called Edge of Tomorrow. Um, so, Josh, I don't know if you've heard this expression, but uh, you got some hot tea. Get your hot tea. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about? I'm not as well-traveled as you. I have not heard that. Uh, so it's like this this idiom of, about like spilling the gossip. Like, oh, sister, pour me, pour me some hot tea so I can share this gossip. I don't, I don't know. I'm going to just glaze over not, this. Not where I come from, <laughs> but go on. So the, uh, just get some hot tea ready because what I'm trying to say is the story behind this uh, this naming drama is actually kind of – like gossipy fun if you will well before you go into it i do want to say that edge of tomorrow is like one of the coolest names i've ever heard for anything and live die repeat is one of the absolute worst names i've ever heard so they were really running the spectrum on this one it's so weird that they could even consider 
calling it Live, Die, Repeat instead of Edge of Tomorrow. And I know what you're talking about. The cover art on Prime, it says Live, Die, Repeat, Edge of Tomorrow. It's all the exact same size. And it covers the entire frame. The image behind of like Tom Cruise and his armor is completely covered by all of those words. So it is very (laughs) weird and confusing. Well, interestingly enough, uh, the original title was... Uh, it was not either of those things. The film originally was going to be called All You Need Is Kill. Now, this is the name of the 2004 Japanese light novel by Hiroshi Sakuruzaka, which the movie screenplay is adapted from. So Warner Brothers president, and uh, I'm going to call her movie title Buzzkill. This is Sue Kroll. (laughs) (laughs) Now, she said the name was changed from All You Need Is Kill to Edge of Tomorrow, partly due to negative chatter about the word kill in the title. That's that, also a cool name. I I mean, I like this. I Yeah, that's a cool name. I kind of think uh, a movie with an incredible amount of action and violence, plus a lead character undergoing a different horrible death over and over and over, uh, I think it's okay having kill in the title of that movie. I, I don't think it's going to be uh, that upsetting to audiences. Kill it. Kill is the main character. Right. Yeah. De- death. It's it's like having a prion as a protagonist. Like exactly. Death is the thing. Um, well, I don't I don't really mean to get on Sue's case in particular because actually the director of this movie, Doug Lehman, also said he didn't feel like all you need is kill fit with the tone of the movie that he had made. So he actually wanted to rename the film Live Die Repeat. But Warner decided to go against the director and use that as just the tagline. So I kind of, I know you don't like live, die, and repeat, but I kind of side with Doug on this because he is the director. I feel like he should have had a little bit more say than some executive, whatever. Um, Gotta bring that money in. It does fit the movie. I mean, it. I don't know. I think it sounds kind of cool, but... Regardless of your opinion, this is what happens when you get too many cooks in the kitchen. That is another idiomatic expression. And you end up just kitchen reference. Nice (laughs) callback. Get in the kitchen and pour some hot tea uh, because you just end up confusing the hell out of your fans when you go back and forth and left and right. Now, this this may seem just like a little minor drama, but this is actually probably pretty consequential. Uh, And speaking of money in particular, because according to an article from SlashFilm.com by Jack Giroux, I think that's how you say that, one of the reasons Edge of Tomorrow didn't immediately strike a chord with audiences at the domestic box office when it first came out might actually be, at least in part, due to the title. So Edge of Tomorrow is actually one of the most unfortunate cases of a studio, uh, a studio movie underperforming in the last few years. Oh my God. That is a yeah. failure of humanity. Yeah. So most people, I mean, it's not just here at the Content Clearinghouse. A lot of people out there agree that it's a high-quality summer movie. People loved the movie when it came out, but the box office sales just fell really short of the expectations. And the director actually has come out and said he vehemently fought and lost over this title snafu. And he ended up, I mean, like publicly really railing into the executive at Warner Brothers who insisted that Edge of Tomorrow was the better title. He was right. <laughs> I remember seeing a poster for this uh, just like in the hallway at a movie theater, and it was just 
Tom Cruise in his armor without a bunch of words on top of it. It just said Edge of Tomorrow at the bottom. And the combination of those things, I was sold because the armor design looked amazing. And Edge of Tomorrow, I think, is a very intriguing name. Like, it made me want to see whatever it was. There was no clue about what the movie was about. And I was already like, yep, I'm in for this one. Yeah. Well, uh, posters, I mean, that that stuff matters. Titles matter. Trailers, marketing like all this all this stuff is really important so that they can you know bring in those sweet sweet box office tendies um <laughs> i mean they got to justify the thousands of dollars the studio spent on just that one squirt bottle guy whose job it was to spray down emily blunt between takes to give her that sweaty sheen and the yoga introduction scene best just job in hollywood also one of the best scenes in the movie indeed but i actually think even Bree felt certain things during that scene because Emily Blunt is not hard on the eyes. She's a favorite, that's for sure. <sighs> she always brings it. She does. Well, anyways, uh, as I was saying, uh, titles, trailer marketing, all that stuff does matter. But at the end of the day, in my opinion, it's the content that speaks for itself. And a problematic... That's right. <laughs> I haven't heard that before, but it <laughs> I like that's what it. we always say here. <laughs> that one time uh you know this problematic theater launch i don't think it's it, it'll make or break the legendary status of a badass movie and edge of tomorrow however you want to title it it easily achieves legendary status so critical consensus says that this movie is gripping well acted funny clever it earned a 91% certified fresh on the popular website that uh, utilizes a tomato-based rating scale. You know the one. Gross. And more importantly, it earned three thumbs up on the Content Clearinghouse. That's our very own rating scale based on an unsettling number of opposable digits. <laughs> and Based on a <laughs> random comment during one of our conversations. Exactly. It really set the stage. And this... It wasn't exactly how I wanted to start my content piece. Uh, I wanted to start with, uh, my dog is sleeping. I'm about to wake him up. On your feet, maggot. (laughs) (laughs) I tried to tone it down a little bit. Anytime you say maggot, Mando knows you're talking about him. (laughs) Oh, God. That's a horrible insult. (laughs) I hate that. World's best dog. Uh, so now that you're on your feet, uh, Edge of Tomorrow was released late spring in 2014. And actually, uh, I most recently rewatched The Edge of Tomorrow in preparation for this episode on the film's seventh year anniversary of its theatrical release. So that's about, I think, 12 days ago now. And incidentally, it was probably about the 12th time I've watched this movie because I love it that much. And Josh, there's going to be spoilers. I already Perfect. I already kind of sprinkled a little spoiler in there. This is a, I mean... We have a kind of a random system for determining if we want to talk about spoilers, but I think it kind of has something to do with, like it's like a statute of limitation. You know, if a film is old enough or enough of a classic, like Avatar, I feel like if you were listening to this show and you've never seen Avatar before, I can't believe you're listening to this show. <laughs> and that's, I feel like that's, you know, kind of where Edge of Tomorrow falls to, which is, yeah. I'm glad that you are going to do spoilers because there's some questions that I do have that require spoilers, but we'll get into them later. Yeah. Well, I, I definitely want to like 
sum up um, a little bit of the plot, and I want you to stop me and interject anytime you have something to say, because I kind of left this format a little open-ended because I want to talk about a couple other things near the end. But uh, basically, if you haven't seen the movie, Edge of Tomorrow follows Major Cage. He's a military figurehead used uh, really for interviews and recruiting. Soon he becomes Private Cage when he refuses the orders of his superior, this hard-ass warman General Brigham. And you see there's, there's this war going on. It's between humanity and a ruthless enemy of extraterrestrial origin. <clears throat> when Cage refuses his orders and even ends up threatening his superior, uh, pretty soon he finds himself strapped into a really badass exoskeleton combat suit equipped with all kinds of high-grade weaponry and uh, he doesn't have any idea really how to use it. And he's being dumped out of an aircraft unceremoniously into the front lines of a battle that is planned to be the last stand against these brutal aliens. But fortunately, Cage has extensive training. Unfortunately, it is in public relations, and it is not, not in helpful. combat. <laughs> not not helpful. good on the front line. <laughs> not good. No bueno. Now, I'm, sh uh, I'm not really sure if this uh, untrained soldier being thrown into the midst of battle counts as an example of the fish-out-of-water trope that's really popular in movies, but I don't know. That's what I think of. The fish is definitely out of the water. And uh, we, we should also mention, if you haven't seen this, Tom Cruise plays Major Cage. Oh, yeah. I, uh, thanks for bringing that up. So I got you. <laughs> So in this scene, you know, we find out that even even if uh, Tom Cruise uh, playing uh, Major Cage, even if he was a well-trained warrior, it's evident from the start this attack is doomed. Like I got some serious Omaha Beach and Saving Private Ryan vibes during this first action sequence. Absolutely. So yeah. The the UDF, the United Defense Force, it's a global military alliance established to combat these these entities, the mimics. The mimics. Now, uh, the UDF ends up completely outnumbered, totally underprepared. I think they were feeling pretty confident because it's mentioned briefly they just achieved their first victory at Verdun using these new powered combat suits that I mentioned. So now they're planning to just throw everything they've got and the, the alien enemies, as you pointed out, called the mimics. Uh, I, things just don't go well. We Unfortunately, soon... <laughs> the mimics knew they were coming. <laughs> that is true. <clears throat> we we find out basically their one-time victory uh, was probably a bit of a ruse. These humans were allowed to win so that the mimics were able to better evaluate the UDF tactics and then respond accordingly. So even the furiousist is that a word? Furiousist. It is a okay. furiousistologist. Why why does that yeah. sound like such a weird word when I? Uh... When I say that it. one works better when it's written out. <laughs> it is. I I did not read this outline. I just wrote this outline. All right. I now, didn't. Let read me it ask you loud. a question, though. Yes. Yeah. Let me go ask for you a it. question. Because this may be a uh, point of confusion on my part, but um, I was under the impression that they won the Battle of Verdun because what I'm sure you're going to get into the uh, the power of the Alpha, which is the ability that kind of cements the entire movie. Yeah, sure. the, the ability to reset time is infused into Emily Blunt's character. Now that, that is the that is possible. That, that is why they won. It it might be. Um, I I decided not to mention that, but 
So later in the movie, we do find out that Emily Blunt has the same power that I'm going to talk about. And um, it is it is very likely that that's why. Um, but I'm not 100% sure because I did do a little digging online. And it, I kind of... There was, there was a theory that they were the humans were allowed to win that time like they because they could have reset time if they were going to lose as well like one of the alphas could have committed suicide by udf if you will and reset there's it like if they're going to lose like it's basically impossible it, for this thing to lose the alphas are like a one in a billion but there's still enough of them that they could have sacrificed one potentially yeah, I, I don't think it's in my notes, but I think it's one in six point one eight million is what mm. I remember. Uh, that's at least what was in the in the novel, the original novel. But um, so my 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 opinion after looking into it a little bit deeper is that they wanted the humans confident so that they would throw everything that they had into the final battle. So they probably were resetting time, and then they just like let the win happen and they might have even known because eventually they do figure out that somebody has that that's not an alpha has that ability to trigger a reset so they might have even known to um you know just can just to let the win happen so that they didn't give the humans more information but that's going in a little bit deeper than i was going to but that's uh, all right i'm glad you brought it up i mean it's it's interesting though because i've seen this movie numerous times and that had never occurred to me and that that's one of the great things about this film is that it it seems so well thought out and so well constructed for the most part that you can actually develop theories about them and you know there multiple theories could be correct that that's a yeah, I think that's definitely. a hard thing to do in a film yeah i i there's definitely a lot of like world building and backstory uh that's extremely well done and it's like kind of happens behind the scenes. And that's why I'm able to watch it a dozen times. I mean, it definitely that's, is one of those great films that like you can just watch over and over and over. Uh, repeat, repeat, repeat. View, watch, repeat. See, it's <laughs> interesting too because uh, I watched a uh, making of and they said that when they started primary filming or primary photography, whatever they call it, filmographing, they, uh, they did not have a completed script. And they just kind of said that in passing in this behind the scenes. And that kind of blew my mind because I didn't, I couldn't even comprehend how you could make a film like this without a detailed roadmap right from the beginning because it's so interwoven. It's so like expertly crafted and timed. That was a, that, that was such a crazy thought to me, but they really pulled it off. That's interesting. Yeah. I, I had not heard that. Um, well, so, Back to uh, the person that we're talking about, this super badass warrior, the most fearest, the most, f- <laughs> the, m- <laughs> the most <laughs> fearest, the fearestest. <laughs> she must have been thinking about prions. I, I was thought I was so clever for uh, switching fearestest to most fierce. Um, so this this badass warrior we got that the, the humans she's fighting for the humans. This is Sergeant Rita Rose Vratowski. Uh, now she's referred to by her military nickname full metal bitch uh now she even in if this you want to get punched in the face <laughs> yeah, yeah exactly now even uh she doesn't make it very long in this in this like crazy battle so of course the incompetent cage didn't even stand a chance now i got a fun movie fact for you about that moment when rita played by emily blunt is first seen marching out of the hangar this random soldier comes up and yells bloody hell it's the full metal 
and then she just shoves him down before he can finish saying the B word. Uh, so that soldier is actually played by Emily Blunt's real life younger brother, Sebastian. Nice. Keeping it at the family. Totally. A little bit of that Hollywood nepotism I'm hearing about. <laughs> it never happens. So back to our battle. If uh, Rita, the best of the best, just can't whoop, can't beat these mimics and doesn't, you know, she, if she can't even make it, uh, you know the untrained cage doesn't stand a chance. But he doesn't luckily, even know how to turn the safety off of his gun. <laughs> exactly. Can't even get it out of Japanese or whatever language. He, <laughs> he's getting in the system preferences. He's I got love the Korean subtitles on. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, luckily for the humans, by sheer dumb luck, Cage survives long enough to use a claymore mine to kill an unusually large blue mimic called an alpha. Now, the alpha's uh, caustic blood absolutely blankets Cage and probably the movie's most gruesome scene. And I thought this is uh, reminiscent of the Nazi face-melding moment from Indiana Jones and the Lost Ark, just a little bit bluer. What did you think? Uh, yeah, indeed. Also a bit more CGI than yeah, a uh, wax man melting. But yes, <laughs> definitely some influences there. Yeah, it was it was more like a loose homage. Um, now, Josh, I know you love landmines, so I feel like you probably really loved <laughs> that scene. I don't know. Yeah, it's great. Front toward enemy, <laughs> classic. So Cage is mortally wounded, but as we've already kind of spoiled, he wakes up. And someone, once again, is yelling at him to get on his feet and comparing him to a uh, soft-bodied, legless larva. Mando the dog. (laughs) (laughs) I was trying to make a maggot joke, but you made it personal. No, that's... Yeah, Mando the maggot. World's best dog. Mando the maggot. World's world's best larva. So we soon find out that these mimics, they've been harboring this important skill... This alien entity, as a collective, can time hop. So they consist of drones, these very scary creatures, able to shift, move rapidly, take a beating. Uh, They do lots of killing. And they're kind of like the grunts, the front line. There's these alphas. pulse like a heartbeat. It's very unsettling. (laughs) The the design for this, the effects for this, are absolutely mind-blowing. I mean, it's it's one of my favorite things about the movie. Like, it's... I love a good monster. I love a good alien in one of these. It's like, so unique, too. Uh, There's never been anything like it. Never. Never seen anything like this. Uh, and they you know, they stayed true, I think, to the novel. As far as I could tell, um, it was a, a really accurate depiction of what was originally imagined. So these alphas, they're a rarer... They're kind of a commander unit, and these are the ones filled with the uh, blue face-melting blood... And then there's the Omega, and the Omega is this big old brain behind the operation. So the Omega is telepathically or maybe psychically linked, I'm not really sure, but somehow linked to these alphas, and when an alpha mimic dies, it's like an automatic response. It's triggered. The Omega causes um, you know, the, a turn back in time, basically, and it can retain the knowledge of the potential future. And this obviously gives these aliens, the mimics, an almost unimaginably large advantage over anything that can't also time hop. Uh, I mean, they'll just keep turning back time until a favorable outcome is reached. And um, let's see, I have some, I actually do have in my notes. I thought I I wasn't going to mention this, but it, I have in my notes that during the battle of Verdun, the mimics let the humans win so that they could get the humans to throw everything uh, they have 
and just they can take them out in one fell swoop. So there you go. I wow, is that to reiterate? I don't know I, how I never picked up on that. I don't think so. I think that this was a a deep dive, and then also I just like kind of agree with this theory because it was it's what really I had guessed as well. But I don't know. I'll have to rewatch it again. Thirteen's a charm that it all makes sense falling apart. Oh, nuts! Yeah. So this. Um, let's see here. So these the mimics they're using this time hopping they're they're studying the combat strategies they're trying to get these battle plans basically from the udf and they want to just keep playing this rated m for mature video game until they beat it so the one possible weakness that they have is this blue blood it holds the key to triggering this omega reset and since cage was doused in it and i mean it doesn't look fun but there is a good aspect to it he is now reborn with all his memories intact he gained the alpha's ability so i i don't know if you uh were thinking the video game angle because i know how much you love video games i'm sure that you immediately noticed the video game-esque quality in this i can tell Uh, you exactly what kind of video game this is (laughs) lay it on me so i looked this up and i was very surprised to find no one had made this connection yet and uh there's a certain type of video game. This falls perfectly in line with the uh, with the game style. And it's called a roguelike. And a roguelike is a game where it, it features permadeath. So you play your character all the way through as far as you can until you die. And when you die, you lose all progress. But you reset at the beginning of the game. All, it, it depends on the, on the roguelike you're playing. Sometimes they have procedurally generated levels. So the layout changes. A lot of them use the same level layout and the same care or enemy distribution. And so as you play, you are constantly building up knowledge of the game and the gameplay mechanics. And so you are not really carrying over your weapons or anything. Sometimes you may unlock some skills, kind of like Cage does. He unlocks new, uh, new abilities just by training. And that's the stuff you carry over into each playthrough until eventually you beat the entire game in one life. And that's exactly what's happening in Edge of Tomorrow. He's Interesting. losing everything he gains, but he's replaying the same levels, the same enemy layout, and what he's carrying through is his ability as a soldier. Yeah, I mean that, and also he's able to predict the you know the moment or the excuse me the movements of the mimics, like the basically their battle plans is just being put on repeat. Um, he so creates not only, like a like a dance, basically, like yeah. step two two steps to the left, exactly. and then pause for two seconds as he's letting them kind of like just shuffle around him. Well, that was um, that was a, a interesting observation because I am not as deeply familiar with uh, video game genres as you are. But I did the thought that came into my mind was this was the maggot save point that Cage had reached. It's kind of like a like a saving checkpoint, and so he Indeed. was just getting respawned. Um, you know, to try this level again, basically. But because I knew that you had uh, some, something to say about the video game route, I actually wanted to take a, a very different comparison with this movie. And I, this is another movie I've seen uh, quite a few times. It's one of my favorite movies. It's from the early 90s, and it's Groundhog Day. Oh, yeah. This is Groundhog Day with murder and killing. Totally. It's totally what this movie is. 
Well, Groundhog Day, I mean, this is a classic for a reason. Uh, this is a brilliant Bill Murray film. It explores this fascinating idea of reliving the same day over and over again. Uh, it's, I mean, it's getting trapped in a one-day time loop, if you will, just like Edge of Tomorrow. You're trapped in limbo. Now, this concept goes way back, long before video games made respawning after death a common occurrence uh, to gamers everywhere. So reincarnation is actually uh, this concept I want to talk about. It's an important aspect of the Buddhist belief system. Now, Buddhists believe that human beings are born and reborn an infinite number of times until they achieve nirvana. So this this process of being reborn, it's called Sam... Uh, I, thought, I thought it was Samsara, but I have Samara written down. Let me... Look it up Never trust quick. your own notes. I there's a uh, you know there's a couple typos in here. Yeah, it's I'm pretty sure that it's uh, just want just for Buddhist accuracy. I want to get I want to get this right. Sam Sarah. We don't want to get those Buddhist, Buddhist critique emails. Actually, they are we'll take them. <laughs> yes. Send them in. Yeah, it we'll is. Read them it on is, the air. It is Sam Sarah. And you know what? I said philium earlier. I think the animal kingdom is made of philums. But I, I'm not gonna look that one up because I don't care as much. We're <laughs> contentologists, not talkieologists, all right, people. <laughs> exactly. So this uh, samsara, this cycle, it's it's associated with suffering. Uh, they also believe that the way that somebody acted in a previous life, it will influence what what they reincarnate as. So if you remember Groundhog Day, it's this egotistical weatherman, Phil. Phil Connors, he becomes trapped in this endless loop of death and rebirth. There's no alien blood required for this, um, but he has to break the cycle. He eventually does this through personal redemption. Now, this tie to Buddhism was definitely not an accident. It was actually uh, Harold Ramis, the director of the film. He coined this term Buddhish and said that uh, this, this one word, basically, Buddhish, summed up his entire belief system. One of his close friends was a Zen Buddhist. His mother-in-law was a Zen Buddhist. And Harold, I think he really liked, he wasn't a a Buddhist, but he liked the religion. He described it as simple and memorable, and there is no requirement of articles of faith. In Edge of Tomorrow, Cage's story arc follows a very similar path, but instead of total asshole to compassionate, loving, gratitude-filled Murray the Weatherman, we have this cowardly and incompetent Cage. Decidedly un-Tom Cruise. <laughs> exactly. Which Tom Cruise plays this character incredibly effectively. It's I mean, called it's, acting. <laughs> it's incredible These what these people can do. It's true. He can play it not Tom Cruise. <laughs> he can't. He really can't. He's, he just rarely does it. Totally. I mean, that's <laughs> yeah. It's how he starts out in this movie. And, you know, through these repeated lives and deaths, he's forged into this ultimate mimic fighting machine. A Tom Cruise. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> that's that's uh, that's a good one. If there so, was a real-life yeah. Ethan Hunt, it would be Tom Cruise. He's probably the only person in the world that could actually do the things that action heroes do. You know, he I could actually... do all of them. Um so, you know, you, you, you flow in on John's PC-12 into the wedding. Now, you know, for listeners out there, this is, uh, Josh is a baller. Sometimes he likes to mix up which private plane he flies on. So he flew out on Rusty's Cirrus SR-22, our friend Rusty that we've interviewed before, who was the stunt double for Henry Cavill. Who jumped at Tom uh, Cruise. Mission Impossible Fallout. So, um, 
actually, I asked Rusty if there's any stunt work on the docket. He said no, but I guess the uh, current filming that has been postponed to the COVID for the newest Mission Impossible movie. I, I can't wait to see this movie. Tom Cruise is doing a moto base jump, a motorcycle <laughs> base jump. And he's doing the stunt, of course. That is so awesome. So actually, I saw some behind the scenes on this. So they built this big giant ramp off a cliff. I don't know, maybe in Norway or someone or somewhere. And he's riding a motorcycle off of it, going into free fall, tracking away, and then deploying a base jump. But I saw some video of uh, them training for this, and they built this sky coaster like setup. Which is a sky coaster if you've never seen it. It's a big giant swing. You hang in a harness on your stomach. And uh, you release and you swing this giant arc. But they built this sky coaster style setup and he was attached to it and he rode. The motorcycle went off the edge and then he swung out over the canyon and practiced tracking away. It's like the ultimate base jump training system. And then they removed awesome. all that and then did a, a you know a true free fall stunt. It's just like, again, total action hero in real life. Totally. So cool. Well, um, yeah, back to Edge of Tomorrow. So Tom Cruise's character, Cage, he goes through this through this process, through this uh, evolution, and he doesn't do it alone. He has coaching from Rita. I mean, as you've pointed out, she had taken a sip of this nasty blue Gatorade, right? Like she had, you know, we, he realizes um, that he needs to find Rita because she sees him pulling off this like super badass move that only somebody that could have gone through the loop repeatedly could have pulled out. And so you see the realization. She says, find me when you wake up. And so she becomes this coach. And then we get into the meat and the potatoes of the film. It's this transition that Tom Cruise uh, this goes through, this change that we see that is so well acted. It's honestly one of the reasons that this is this movie's on my you know top list. It's one of my favorites. He goes from a Christopher Mintz Plaz to a Tom Cruise in ninety minute runtime. <laughs> exactly, and I, you know, I think what's really believable too. I, he brings this almost like sly humor to this unfortunate circumstance that he's in. He's dying over and over and over. He's training with Rita. He's going through all these various moves and plays. Uh, he needs to get through to get to the Omega. So, watching these scenes. Uh, you might have also have wondered what I have wondered. How many times did Cage relive the Groundhog Day in Edge of Tomorrow? Nice. Do you have any thoughts on this? <laughs> oh, man. I, I don't know why I've never counted. Probably because it's such a blur in the movie. I'm going to well, go if you, with... if you count them... Oh, yeah. Go ahead. Let's see. I'm guessing that he probably did this at least 600 times. Okay. I Yeah. I like that guess. Uh, it's... You know, there's no right or wrong answer here. It's a safe space. It's not explic- explicitly stated. Now, if you just count what you see on screen, we see 26. But it's obvious through some of the skills he picks up, other hints in the movie, that that's just what we see on screen. His battle-hardened look where he's, at one point, he just looks at the guys in J-Squad and he's like, I need five extra magazines. Yeah. Ten grenades and an extra battery. He just like has his entire yeah. kit laid out. Yeah, no, they all think no he's helmet. a rookie. Just yeah. like 
sweaty, distracting, angry. Yeah, exactly. So awesome. It's it really is great. So there's, we see a lot of these training montages. We see that there's plenty of days that happened off screen. So in the book, all you need is kill. It's stated that there were 160 days. Now I'm gonna argue that there was actually a lot more than that. So Rita says during her time looping, she watched Hendrix, another character that we don't meet, die 300 times. So she went through at least 300 days. And uh, no wonder she's such a badass because that is a lot of mimic killing in 300 days. So also imagine how this power uh, would affect you as an organism. How it would affect the mimics? Like they would just perceive reality in such a different way because they wouldn't be limited by the space-time continuum like we are, or they would perceive that in a different way. That's a it's such an interesting idea for a creature. Uh, Just watch Groundhog Day to see how uh, you know how humans would react. Tortured (laughs) is the answer. (laughs) So also um, to kind of support my thesis here, when they're in the barn. Cage says he's lost track of how many times and routes he's tried to make sure that she doesn't also die. So honestly, I think it's um, more in the range of years instead of days. I like the idea that Cage has been through like years of this. Uh, I like kind of the thought that it just took like a huge toll on his psyche because he has clearly changed physically and mentally. But you also see these like certain moments in the battle where, I mean, he must have tried just a singular move several times before he got it right and survived and then moved on to the next conflict. A, a good judge of this, this is not part of the battle scene, but the scene where he's about to get his ass kicked by J-Squad for being like a double deserter and trying to get out of PT before the, you know, whatever. <laughs> so great. Whatever they're doing. So, because really, I mean, at this point, he's going off to train with Rita but they just thought he was being a coward. So he dodges every single punch. He even closes his eyes. And I was thinking, how many times does somebody have to go through that moment to be able to dodge every, you know, thrown punch in a fight like that? So I, my guess here is 10 years. And here is my reasoning. I'm going to piggyback off of the work done by the blog, whatculture.com. So these guys worked out with the question, uh, how long has Phil spent in limbo in Groundhog Day? And they went deep. Uh, so despite the film's director, Harold Ramis, originally stated he thought Phil was stuck for 10 years, he later admitted the estimate was far too short. What Culture.com did was methodically reassess Groundhog Day, looking at three stages of the film. So this included the 38... 38- one of them how long it takes to learn to play piano? It is. Exactly, 10,000 hours to become an expert at something. So we, we have 38 days shown on screen, the 414 days mentioned, including six months, four to five hours a day spent throwing playing cards into a hat, and there was a colossal 11,931 days spent learning, and then based on the theory that it takes 10,000 hours to become an expert, the third stage covered the time needed for Phil to learn French poetry, ice sculpting, and of course the piano. And by the way, if you remember, he was doing all this to impress his producer, who he was inappropriately crushing on, and because uh, you know she was just a professional associate. But that producer's character's name, that producer's name, in Groundhog Day was also Rita. Wow! Coincidence. Definite, definite crossover. <laughs> it's possible. So all this time, 
plus also a final additional stage identified as the gesture days in which Murray's character saves a falling child, performs the Heimlich maneuver, and buys a couple of newlyweds WrestleMania tickets. So what this blog decided on was 33 years and 350 days. Wow. So Now, I took that research. I analyzed The Edge of Tomorrow. I realized Cage did not have to learn French or the piano, and then I randomly picked 10 years. <laughs> <laughs> You're a regular old Harold Ramis. <laughs> exactly. We're back to the start. What a waste of everyone's time. <laughs> <laughs> but you'll be able to carry this knowledge into the next time you listen to this episode. That's right. So Edge of Tomorrow has been compared to another favorite movie of both of ours from the late 90s that you've covered on the show. Uh, a film review from Variety said Groundhog Day and Starship Troopers make surprisingly oh, compatible bedfellows in Edge of Tomorrow. What a combo. Yeah, I kind of like this analogy. I was thinking of uh, if you took Johnny Rico and you put him into, uh, you replaced Bill Murray with Johnny Rico, and then all the townspeople were mimics. And uh, I don't know, Johnny gets some help from the Groundhog. That's played by Emily Blunt. All right, I, <laughs> I thought she was the producer. <laughs> uh, that's I a will good tell point. you this she has to play the other Rita. Yeah, you're doing a much better job at this than I did at Starship Troopers, which I would consider our worst episode of all time. What? Oh man, I thought it was great. Yeah, I'll always be harder on myself than you. You're so happy. Oh, uh, well, you're such a Johnny Rico. Oh, uh, thanks. You're a real <laughs> Rita. <laughs> well, before I wrap up, there is a whole other topic I want to jump into that this movie always makes me think about, and that is battle suits. The now, <laughs> greatest thing ever. It's like wearing a fighter jet. <laughs> so the these things have uh, many names depending on you know what you're looking at online or who you talk to. A mech suit, cybernetic armor, exosuit, a powered exoskeleton, whatever you call it. These things in the movie are awesome. And if you think, wow. Our military might not be too far off from developing some kind of powered wearable machine. Well, Josh, I'm here to tell you they're already here, and they've also been around a lot longer than you think. Thank would you like? Would you like goodness. to get? Would you like to get into the history just a little bit? Of course, Brett. We can't leave today without talking about <laughs> exoskeletons. So the earliest known exoskeleton-like device was an apparatus for assisting movement developed in 1890. I bet it was so awful. <laughs> I bet it was horrible. It's like carrying around a steam engine on your back. It was, uh, I, I really looked hard for a picture of this thing. Um, I don't know if it was built or if it was just a pattern. I could not find a picture. Um, but this it was, was a time when they had mech suits, but they didn't have pictures uh, Well, yet. I mean, uh, like an artist depiction. Yeah. I should say. There, you're, that is a great point. Uh, maybe that's why I couldn't find a picture. Let's hope it may be a Da Vinci-style drawing. Well, Russian engineer Nicholas Yagin is responsible for this thing. The energy was stored in compressed gas bags, and that is what assisted the movement. Um, it still required human power, long. obviously. No. So, 1917, uh, this is a U.S. guy, an inventor, Leslie Kelly, developed what he called a pedo motor. No. Sounds illegal. <laughs> this actually did operate on steam power, and it had artificial ligaments acting in parallel with the wearer's movements. Now, this system was able to actually supplement human power with external power. 
Then it was the 1960s that the first true mobile machines integrated with human movements really started to appear. This was a suit called the Hardyman that was co-developed by General Electric and the U.S. Armed Forces. Now, this thing actually was a little more legit. It was powered by hydraulics and electricity, and it amplified the wearer's strength by a factor of 25. So lifting 240 pounds would have felt like lifting 10 pounds-ish. There was a feature called force feedback. This enabled the wearer to feel the forces and the objects being manipulated. Sounds pretty sweet. That does sound pretty sweet. That's 1917? That was in the 1960s. Oh, that oh, that's a later model. Yes. Wow, that that's yeah, that's the kind of advancement I would expect today. But I I guess it's it's kind of fitting cuz it seems like most military technology that we hear about is actually like 20, 30 years old. Everything right. that we think is new has actually been around since the 60s, since the space age. Exactly. So that makes sense. It is the there, most technologically uh, advanced current. Um yeah, so there are a couple of things. I did, but real quick about the Hardyman machine. Um, I wanted to touch on the limitations. It, it, it weighed fifteen hundred pounds, oh, wow. and it also was designed by a, what was apparently called a master slave system. I don't know mm. why they felt this terminology was appropriate back in the nineteen sixties. Well, actually, that is uh-huh. a uh, that's something that's been around for a long time. In, um, I think it's in, I think it's in like solenoids or something, some mechanical systems. Okay. But I've definitely heard of controversy lately about those type of systems being renamed because highly inappropriate. Yeah. Well, so the, how this worked, the operator was in a master suit and it was surrounded by the exterior slave suit. Now this performed work in response to the operator's movements but because you had this like dual system, the response time for the slave suit was slow, uh, a lot slower than a system that would be you know, a single layer. And these bugs caused violent and uncontrollable motion by the machine when moving both <laughs> legs simultaneously. Something you want a 1,500-pound <laughs> outfit doing. You know, it, if you remember in the, uh, in the Saving Private Ryan scene in edge of tomorrow there's somebody like laying face down in the water like his body's like convulsing because the machine is malfunctioning you see electrical arcing and stuff so this made me think of that so uh, on top of that hardyman's uh machine had a very slow walking speed it went 2.5 feet per second or just <laughs> under oh, no <laughs> just under two miles per hour so You'd the be project better off just being a human <laughs> yeah exactly so you want to know where we're at now. The obvious limitation is really the power source. There are already some amazing and feasible exoskeleton possibilities floating around out there. There's some that are for specific body parts. There's also some for the complete body. Now, a lot of these actually do have incredible potential. I mean, I, you know, providing assistance to somebody with a disability, being used by civilians, construction workers, firefighters, carrying heavy equipment, you know, helping with rescues. Um, but what I really was searching for is where are we at with a full body suit for soldiers? I want that military application, baby. Iron Man suit. Exactly. So the, the 2000s, early 2000s, the Defense Advanced Research Project Agency, more commonly known as DARPA, 
They funded the first Sarcos full-body powered exoskeleton prototype. So this was hydraulically actuated, and it consumed 6,800 watts of power. 2010, DARPA and Sarcos had halved that power consumption to about 3,000 watts. It still required the exoskeleton to be tethered to the power source. So today, the Sarcos Guardian XO is powered by lithium-ion batteries, and it actually is applicable for military logistics applications. There have been a few other prototypes as well. There's the Talos exoskeleton. This was developed by the U.S. Army. Uh, it was put on hold in 2019. There was the Lockheed Martin's Onyx suit. That's been developed. It's a somewhat slimmed down kind of exosuit. It's really aimed to support soldiers in performing tasks that are knee intensive. So like crossing difficult like terrain. Uh huh. Carrying a load also, like yes. load bearing suit. Yeah. Exactly. Now, um, there is an honorable mention here. Now, this is not exactly a powered exoskeleton, but it's close enough that I'm going to mention it. There's a Canadian man named Troy (laughs) Hurtabuse. Hurtabuse. What is it? Hurtabuse? Troy Hurtabuse and his famous bear suit. (laughs) There you go. (laughs) This man spent thousands of dollars and who knows how long developing several iterations of the world's first grizzly bear proof suit it's one of my favorite things that's ever existed (laughs) i was so happy to watch uh this video again that i'm going to share in the in the uh, show notes of this news clip uh really the best thing to come out of this inventor is most likely the video footage of himself testing the suit that i'm going to Add that link in the show notes. You have to check this out. Hilarious. Now, let me ask you. (laughs) Yeah. Because uh, our good friend Derek and I, we picked out our favorite shot (laughs) from the documentary about this. And it was when he was testing his like Mark I or something. It it basically looks like a suit made out of foam wrapped in duct tape. (laughs) And he walks up to these like grizzly, not bears, but bikers at this bar. And they just start beating him with two by fours. And he's just like, uh, 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 taking it all <laughs> it's no exoskeleton but it is two by four proof well that's that's pretty nice yeah the uh the news clip i'm sharing you've got this like 300 pound log that like <laughs> swings into his chest uh you have a car plowing into him Predator at three miles track. an hour yeah exactly um you also have him throwing himself down a ravine i mean this is definitely some some footage. This is definitely some stuff that has been immortalized by the web, but that if you have not seen it yet, you uh, you don't want to miss out on this. And he's actually also featured in a do- like a documentary. It's uh, it's called Project Grizzly. It's a cult classic. It was directed by Peter Lynch, and it's rumored to be a favorite of director Quentin Tarantino. And it is also available for free on YouTube. So I'm sharing that link too. His suit is more of a crush-proof limb isolator than an exoskeleton, though. Yeah, yeah, it's definitely not an exoskeleton, but I just couldn't stop thinking about it when I was one of the greatest things <laughs> ever. Um, did you see any of the behind-the-scenes about how they filmed the exoskeleton scenes? I did. Uh, no, it was it uh, wire suspension. So the suits weighed. I think they said something like eighty pounds a piece, uh-huh. and. So, that, yeah, they had to film them. They they create these uh, scaffoldings overhead, like in the Normandy scene. The entire set was built with these scaffolding, uh, just places they could run wire work. 
and then the actors were suspended, but they were still moving this 80 pound suit. And, you know, that's how they got like the cool shots of Tom Cruise, like leaping through the air and spinning. But uh, a lot of the actors were like, man, this is such hard work. But then we see Tom Cruise, who's older than all of us running around in this 80 pound suit, doing all his own stunts. And it made us all want to work harder and like work out so we could actually move these suits around and make it look like the suit was moving us or assisting in our movement. Yeah. And that was one of the hardest things about filming it was to not make it look like they were hauling 80 pounds around, but to make it look like they were effortlessly moving and the suit was doing most of the work. I mean, it, Tom Cruise, he could run before, but in this suit, man, he can really run. He's got his own signature run. It involves a straight back and open palms. I feel I feel like I've I've discussed a compilation video of Tom Cruise's runs before. It's ringing a bell. Well, Josh, whether you're on your first life or your thousandth, I truly feel like Edge of Tomorrow is a movie for anybody that loves action, sci-fi, aliens, Tom Cruise, sweaty Emily Blunt, or exoskeletons. That's all people. It covers everyone. <laughs> You don't have to be Troy Herta whatever to appreciate. <laughs> Please. You don't have to be Troy Hurtubees to appreciate <laughs> this movie's badass military technology that is hurt. super. <laughs> Actually, it does hurt to be Troy. <laughs> he seems like he might have brain damage. <laughs> Definitely. Definitely. I mean, this it's super fun to see these things uh, imagined on screen. And like good sci-fi, this film might just be accurately predicting the body armor tech that is right around the corner. This stuff may soon assist our U.S. soldiers with just another one of those fun invasions foreign countries really seem to enjoy. I love this movie <laughs> so much. If I get stuck in a time loop, I'm going to watch this over and over and over. And if you've had this movie on repeat too, well, I've got good news for you. Doug Lehman said a sequel is not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. Maybe he, this is what they're <laughs> filming in space. I th- thought that that was a Mission Impossible. No, it's a Doug Lehman, Tom Cruise. Are you serious? Story. Yeah. Well, ah, that blows my mind. I had not heard this. I, um, well... I do have a little bit of bad news about this. Um, we're we're not totally sure. The current Hollywood gossip is saying that the sequel is likely not happening. Uh, the good news, the good news is we we got to keep our fingers crossed. Emily Blunt said the Edge of Tomorrow Two has an amazing script. Like I said, Doug Lehman said the sequel is a matter of when. He also described the potential Edge of Tomorrow sequel, the Edge of Tomorrow 2. Edge of Tomorrow, the world's oh, worst title. That's terrible. <laughs> live, Would you die, put it past the squared. live, die, repeat team? <laughs> oh, man. Well, what he said about this is that Edge of Tomorrow 2 would be both a sequel and a prequel, and it would revolutionize how people make sequels. So maybe there is a little nugget of truth um, with the filming in space i mean these are these are powerful words from an outspoken filmmaker so i'm gonna keep my fingers crossed sounds like some christopher nolan shit definitely well until we find out for sure we just have to put live die repeat on repeat 
so we can truly embody the great words of Master Sergeant Bill Paxton. Through readiness and discipline, we are masters of our fate. Through readiness and discipline, we are masters of our fate. Through readiness and discipline, we are masters of our fate. I see where you're going with this. (laughs) Do you have anything you want to add? Because I'm done talking. Oh, man, Brett. (laughs) We could seriously talk for another hour and a half about this. Let's do it. Yeah, this is... uh, This is one of the greatest films ever made, one of the greatest titles ever written, (laughs) and one of the worst travesties of retitling ever perpetrated by Hollywood. (laughs) And if you haven't seen Edge of Tomorrow, come on, you got to see it. It's great. And uh, I'm sure that you probably have thoughts if you've seen this. You may agree or disagree with us about some of the things we said, but I think that's what's great about a movie like this is it's very tight. It works on almost every single level and it's debatable like your theory about the aliens letting them win at Verdun is something that had never occurred to me but it does fit perfectly into what a time hopping interdimensional beast would do you know it's it's exactly the kind of strategy you would use and it's kind of along the same lines of the strategy that Tom Cruise uses you know in his repeated battles he's just learning the game plan of the aliens. So that's, that's really cool. And uh, it's interesting to hear something that had never occurred to me before. So yeah, I love this film and I'm right there on board with you, buddy. It was a great choice. I can't wait to strap into an exoskeleton and do some damage out there. Get sweaty. Yeah. <laughs> well, that is one of the best times I've had this week. And I've had a great week sitting here talking to you about edge of tomorrow it was a real nice cherry on top. So thanks for that, Brett. Also, thank you, everyone, for listening to the Content Clearinghouse. We love all of you. Uh, if you are not following us on Facebook and Instagram, you should. Brett writes some very clever things. So check that out at the Content Clearinghouse on Instagram and Facebook. Also, you can email us if you have any questions. We'll read them on the show. Email us at contentclearinghouse at gmail.com. We also have a Discord link, which is in the show notes. You can check that out. And please come back, join us next week. You know what we do here. We jam content into your ear holes. So there is something that I wanted to talk about. Maybe not in the actual episode. Maybe here behind the scenes. Uh, But I wanted to discuss the ending with you. And I want to get your thoughts. Because I've always felt the ending was a little tacked on. It was a little Hollywood. So just the fact that um, he's able to survive... He resets time to the beginning of the day because he kills the Omega. And, um, yeah. What's your, what are your thoughts? So basically the things that you're saying, you know, that, you know, the typical movie goer loves a happy ending and this is such a great concept, but it does seem like it'd be very hard to write a real ending for this. And one of the problems I've always had is like what you said they, they find the Omega, they fight it, they kill it, he dies, but the day still resets, but it resets with the war have, having been won. And uh, that's it's always seemed just a little bit cheap to me, and it's amazing that that feeling doesn't ruin this movie for me. Because I, I feel like so much, you know, there's a primacy recency principle with humans where you remember the first and the last thing that you hear, and a lot of the stuff in the middle just kind of gets blurred out. 
And uh, usually if you don't stick the landing, I feel like it's hard to really walk away feeling like a champion. But this movie somehow does it. It doesn't really stick the landing for me, but I still love the film. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, where the confusion is is that we watched Cage so many times return to that maggot save point. Um, But we have to remember that Cage lost that reset ability before the end. And then he regained it. So the first time that he died, he reset to the day uh, before that initial death. So it places him at Heathrow Airport, you know, the morning before the the invasion of the beach. And then no matter how much time passed between him waking up and that death, he's always going to revert to that original save point. But he lost that reset ability. The second time he gained that mimic reset ability... It's almost like uh, a new save point, I think, is, is spun up. And it was a day before he killed the Omega. So I think that's what's happening is like the save point is getting reset. That's my understanding, at least. Yeah, that, that's an interesting take. And I hadn't really thought about how far back his save point goes. But it, you do, it does seem like you're right. It does seem like it's setting him back 24 hours. Because for some reason, the Mimic's reset point works on the rotation of Earth. But uh, when he wakes up at the Maggot save point, that is about a day before he dies. And uh, yeah, I suppose that that does make sense. But I've, I've, I've still always felt like, I mean, I guess this is just rules that we weren't aware of. But when he kills the Omega, it resets without the Omega existing anymore. And that's something that I, guess, I suppose we just weren't exposed to yet because he had never encountered an Omega before. Yeah. Yeah. I would say, I, I know what you mean. It felt a little cheesy walking in and checking out Emily Blunt one more time. You gotta. Well, Brett, I think you salvaged the entire movie for me. You're a true contentologist. <laughs>